0: I'm very excited to talk to you about the subject. Always excited to talk to you, but this will be, I'm sure, very interesting. Uh, so when I came, the background for this one, for this talk, when I came to Portland and we had a few chats in between, uh, I was surprised to learn that you had a, you were into, I'm not sure which term is the best, but spirit, spiritual practices in the past, like meditation and right. And I've been through that. Uh, thing as well, I mean the whole spiritual path non dualistic teachings, right. meditation uh, and uh, it had my opin- opinion about it. I was very very devoted to that, I was deeply involved, and eventually I became disillusioned with it pretty much the same way like as if with martial arts, mm-hmm. so which I think is a healthy thing right uh and from from the chat we had about that, it sounds like you've went through a similar process, yes, so I'm very interested to hear could could you start by Telling a little bit about that experience.
1: Sure. Um, <clears throat> one thing I want to say, I'll we'll just say this up front to get it kind of out of the way, but yeah. um, it's really important for me as the president of Straight Blast Gym, SPG, to make it known that this has nothing to do with what we teach at SPG. So, you know, we have the curriculum at SPG and we have coaches, and among my coaches and black belts, I have people who are atheists, I have people who are um, Christians, I have Buddhists. I don't care um, and we, we can talk about this more as we go and we probably will. but what matters to me and, and what a, the conclusion I eventually came to as I as I grew older is what matters to me about the men and women who represent the organization is, is a shared set of values which we have which have nothing to do with being belonging to or don't require that they belong to any particular religion or not non-religion. And then the second thing is, I don't want people to think if they're coming to a jiu-jitsu class or to SBG, they're going to walk in and it's going to, they're going to be inundated with this. So um, I'm just as happy to have a born again Christian or a Mormon on the mat as I am a secular atheist. So none of that is relevant. Where it fits in with martial arts, which is why I think, you know, you and I are having a conversation about it is culturally, it's tied to martial arts. It, it, certainly the Asian philosophy is tied to martial arts in many ways. Um, and it it is used in martial arts, especially uh, more of the fantasy-based martial arts as a way to keep people hooked on yes. it and as part of the ideology. So inevitably, even even if I'm talking in the context of martial arts skepticism, it's a subject that comes up. And so that, that would be the context of, you know, how we're talking and I want everybody to understand that's watching the video that that's absolutely the case. So I am actually very proud of the fact that someone from any background, provided they're a decent human being and knows how to treat other people politely on the mat, is not going to have any issues, no matter what kind of uh, personal beliefs they have about how the universe was created or what happens after you die at the gym. And I want it to always stay that way. And I know not just myself, but the other top coaches who feel that that how important that is. And so I want to make sure I say that right up front. So um, now we'll talk about me personally. So for me personally, I was raised. Uh, my mother was a Jehovah's Witness, and all my all my mother's family is Jehovah's Witness. They were all either elders or. Uh, pioneers they call them but people that would go overseas like her older brother uh, and his wife lived in Hong Kong for years prior to um, the British giving it back to the Chinese as missionaries. So that's how embedded her family was in the church. My father is a police officer who is not a Jehovah's Witness, in fact Jehovah's Witnesses really aren't, you're not supposed to be a police officer, you're not supposed to carry a gun, you're you're not supposed to go in the military, Um, they are for all intents and purposes kind of pacifists and, and um, not nationalistic that way. So I was raised in kind of contradicting beliefs in a way. Um, and I think my dad allowed my mom to take me with her as I grew up to the to the Kingdom Hall, to the, to the churches and the Bible studies because he felt it was giving me some moral background, which, you know, it did. I, I believe strongly those came just as much from him as they did from her and they came despite the religious beliefs, not because of them. But there's certainly good moral lessons incorporated in the Bible that I learned as a, a child. But they are very much fundamentalists in the sense that um, Noah's Ark story in Exodus isn't a metaphor. There was a, really a flood. I was taught to believe from my mom growing up that the earth was 6,000 years old. Um, was yeah, Uh Yeah. And humans and dinosaurs lived essentially the same time. <laughs> and... Uh, Um, Evolution was a scam that was Mm -hmm. perpetrated by, you know, a corrupt academic Uh conspiracy. And I think um, around the age of 12 or 13 I became very skeptical Mm. of the whole thing. And I kind of just stopped going and my mom and dad didn't push me too much on it. And then I, I left home very early initially when I was 15 and that was it. So I never had much more to do with the religion. Um, and then in my twenties and late twenties, early thirties, I had some spiritual experiences for lack of a better term, but just some were, um, drug related in terms of psychedelics and some were not. So they, there was no, um, drug use involved before, during or after. And they all kind of pointed me towards, um, non-duality,
0: mm-hmm. which, uh, can you say what year that was? Uh,
1: I can't really. I mean, I had a kind of a. Well, you uh, mean, like roughly. Like roughly? Uh, well, I would have been. I think it, I'm terrible with <laughs> remembering the chronology of my own life. In terms of like, was I 30 or 30? I have no idea. But I'm just
0: curious, like, the, the context. Like, yeah, the, the I range, think. What was happening around? My
1: most, my best guess is I think yeah. I was
0: 30. Exactly. When I, I,
1: So in retrospect, I can go back and, and recognize that I've had strange experiences, for lack of a better term. Going back to when I was a kid, I used to have um, hallucinations, and I'd, I'd get headaches uh, uh, that were so bad, migraines, that I would hallucinate. I'm not sure you can call that a spiritual experience, but I had odd experiences, right, um, of different take on at least a... Um, very early understanding of how brain chemistry can affect your perception of reality Mm -hmm. going back to being very little Mm -hmm. and then when i was 30 i had uh, you know very uh, memorable epiphany where i kind of felt to myself that i had a recognition of non-duality that that there's not two Mm -hmm. and that kind of sent me on a search that was very much intellectual because i tend to to be more of the intellectual kind and reading and studying and Buddhism and eventually uh, other things. And then I had an even more, to, I don't want to measure this, but I had a more dramatic experience when I was in the UK several years later. And I don't know, I think I was probably 32, 33. Mm-hmm. And the way I would differentiate that is where when I was 30, that and that first experience was purely of a intellectual kind it was an intellectual recognition of how non-duality made sense in in terms of reason Mm -hmm. and my experience when i was 32 or 33 was an actual experience of being in that state that lasted for several days where where i would walk around a small town in in especially a town called beverly england um, that i'd never been to before in my life and i spent you know a couple of days that way. And that just pulled the carpet out from underneath my life. And so then I went on a mad search both to A, get that back, and to B, figure out what it was. Uh, was that the reality? And everything else is like, is this like a matrix type thing? And everything else is an illusion, and that was reality? And so I started reading all the literature I could find from everywhere, and I didn't really find. I mean, I, you'd have the Christian mystics and Meister Eckhart, and and, um, uh, and and that Saint John of the Cross, and that version of it. And every culture, of course, has this. And we're getting, you know, into what Joseph Campbell talked about and what Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy. That's all there. But I never really ran across one that matched my experience until I read some. Um, a, people writing about Ramana Maharshi. And his talk, especially as it related to, he would constantly bring people back to trying to find a self, and a discussion of first-person pronouns. um, I. And how that I can change meanings in different states of being. For me, that was, matched my experience. And so then I just went mad with everything anybody ever because he never wrote anything down of course so it was just every every talk he ever had people would sit and write it down so I read all that um, and I visited all kinds of uh, gurus and new-age gurus who are affiliated with the uh, Advaita Vedanta school of Ramana Maharshi and. you uh, see some
0: major names? I'm just curious whether... Gangaji
1: and her husband Eli Andrew Cohen? Did you run into Andrew Cohen? Uh, I never met him personally but uh, I, I knew a couple of people, yeah, he was, and I would read the magazine, of course, Enlightenment magazine, but, um, There's probably, if I were to add, you know, maybe 50 of them, because Portland's a hub, right? So pretty much every weekend or a couple times a week, one of them would be coming and doing a song here, and, and people would come and ask questions. And so I would always go, and I would always ask the same couple of questions. And, um, over time, I became increasingly disillusioned with what I saw there because I saw on one hand, I saw some people who I felt just weren't being sincere and who were exploiting the, uh, the whole concept of it
0: from the top to bottom mm-hmm.
1: or from the top to bottom so gurus and people who are you know yeah. doing all that gurus do in
0: those kind of situations you can see it it was obvious okay. and uh, just very interesting yeah. to quickly drop that in there's this great documentary I'm just started watching it about Osho oh, yeah. he made this Bhagavan
1: Shri Rajneeshi
0: right he it locally
1: like it was in Washington State he was a biological terrorist he had his people actually put I forget what it was but they put some botulism or something in a, in a salad bar with some plan on food poisoning the town. I mean, he was, he was the extreme version. How, what do he have, like a hundred Rolls Royces? He had these yuppies coming to him, um, primarily upper middle class white people, which is what I ran into, but certainly I don't even think it was so much white as it was upper middle class. Yeah. Almost everybody that I saw that was involved with this philosophy was, none of them were poor. When you're poor you have too many other concerns yeah, exactly. to deal with, yeah, yeah, you can't yeah. sit around and navel-gaze that right. way. But he would have them, as you know, just come and give all their wealth and possessions and then move up to his ashram and he'd have a hundred Rolls Royce. Yeah, he was the worst of the lot. And, uh, and he went when he was kicked out of the United States and went back to India, he changed his name to Osho. Okay. And ironically, you can still walk in at pretty much any bookstore in the world plenty, and, yeah. and find plenty of Osho books. Yeah. So, yeah. sadly. Yeah. But I, I saw that, and then, but at the same time I saw people in the audience who were absolutely sincere, many of them. Some of them weren't, some of them was a big ego trip, but some of them were sincere. And the ones that were sincere were really suffering. I mean, these are people who, maybe a death of a child or a, a spouse. And, and I think that's where it bothered me the most because I could see somebody who was on the edge emotionally, very hurt. And then there's this person literally on a stage. Pretending to give them answers to to their questions that he knows or she knows they want to hear, all of which um, wore on me after a while. Uh, but I was constantly in the search for the real. I don't. I never found it. I didn't. I don't think I ever found one that I liked or would say. Not that like's not the right word, but that I didn't think in some way was kind of a fraud. And now more importantly probably for the story, while, while I was going through all that, and that stage probably lasted four or five years of my life, maybe not, about four years, and I was a complete asshole.
0: Right? <laughs> so I was,
1: uh, I, was, I was the most self-involved I've ever been. I was the least attentive to my children and my spouse that I had ever been. I was the least concerned with works, to use a Christian term, um, that I had ever been. And I found it to be, for me personally, and I don't want to cast too wide of a net, but for me personally, I found the whole scene to be just a uh, exercise in narcissism. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, you know, I was struggling with that around, I want to say, early 2000s. I don't remember exactly when, but I, I mean, we could, somebody wants to figure out exactly when it was it was the year within a few months of when Sam Harris's book The End of Faith came out so and on December 11 2001 Sam started writing that book and I don't know how long after that it was published but it would have been the early 2000s and so I happened to buy the book in an airport I was actually in Sweden and I read the whole book in of course of was like 24 hours because I was just engrossed in the book and closed the book and I was done like his argument made absolute sense to me, and through the just sheer power of reason, I knew, you know, that he was right about what he was saying, and, and I had been wrong. And And to summarize that very briefly, because Sam doesn't use the word atheist in the book at all, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can find it. It's not a book about atheism. Mm-hmm. But his argument is, It's not healthy for human beings to pretend to know things they don't know. We as human animals experience things that for lack of a better term, we can call spiritual experiences. Those have been going on since man has written. And we know about that because man has written about it. Um, And they go on in every culture. And they do share some remarkable similarities, which is not too odd considering We're all human animals with the same kind of brain and we evolve the same way. So of course we would have very similar experiences in that way cross-culturally. But when you extrapolate from that what you think are facts about the nature of the empirical world um, and then you go on to teach that or believe that without evidence for it and call it faith, then you've made a mistake and um, that to me just made absolute sense. Of course, part of the book is detailing the danger of that kind of thinking and it uses um, fundamentalist Islam as a very obvious example and the fact that you can trace terrorist actions directly to their religious belief, which ironically is something that I found later on in my, in my years as an atheism advocate. Um, unbelievably Short-sighted from the secular left, and that there's so many people on the left that can't admit to that. You know, they can't admit that the actual tenets of Islam itself are related to the fact that they'll strap bombs to a Down syndrome kid and send him in and blow up a market. For them, it has to be socioeconomic circumstances brought on by the American Empire. You know, it has to be that. It can't be the religion itself. Um, but anyway that was his argument and I realized fully when I read the argument that's what I'd done I'd taken these experiences I'd used them as a kind of identity and given me a, a feeling of self-importance um, and then I'd attached beliefs about the nature of reality in the universe based on those experiences and told them to other people who were willing to listen to me in my you know hubris as if they were facts and so that's when I dropped that and and that sent me just to science, and I spent a couple years after that reading mostly books on evolution and also the books on the arguments about God, because I had never been taught those arguments, teleological, ontological arguments, the kind of arguments that are laid out in, you know, for example, Richard Dawkins' book, um, Daniel Dennett's books on uh, evolution. And for a time, for a couple years there, I, I was all about atheism. <laughs> and I'm still an atheist, and I still think it's important. Um, but that eventually changed too, because my experience in those couple of years, I, I found myself hanging out with people who were, and this is going to get a little more political. But in that community, they're, they tend to be overwhelmingly left-leaning. There's a few conservative atheists or libertarian atheists, but they're mostly secular humanists. tend to be very progressive. And I found I didn't really share a lot of values, values as it related to the importance of raising your kids, uh, the values as it related to work and self-reliance and a whole host of issues. And I also found a lot of anger and a lot of uh, misinformation and a lot of... uh, just and again I always I, I, there's no way to have these kind of conversations without me talking about generalities because there's I have deep friendships with people who are left-leaning right I have friends who are progressive who're awesome. so I'm not want to paint with too broad a brush but the community as a whole I found I just didn't really want to be around them and you know you can look at uh, <laughs> Sam who who I I struck up a friendship with afterwards, but you can look at Sam and and, uh, and some of the hatred he gets, or my friend and student Peter Bogosian, and the hatred and death threats that he gets. They're overwhelmingly from the left. Right. And that's what, not just myself, but I think also Pete and other people have found, is when we would have these conversations, we're like, okay, let's have a conversation about the existence of God. Let's have a debate. And you could go into a church, or you could sit down at a table, I could, with a... A table full of born again Christians or evangelicals, they would hear me out if they were interested in the subject. I mean, I don't want to push it on them, but they're like, "Yeah, let's have the debate." They would hear me out. They would present their version of it. We would disagree, um, and then we would shake hands, and they'd be the kindest people in the world. And and they won me over with their behavior, not their beliefs because I had the opposite experience on the left. If if I didn't if I didn't agree with their particular point of view on a a social issue, I was insert pejorative here, and I found them a lot more closed-minded and a lot more narcissistic than I did genuine fundamentalists who do believe the earth is 6,000 years old, but you know what, they're awesome human beings. It's a long-winded story, but to bring it full circle back to and again, it's just my personal story of how I came to where I'm at now. I eventually started to think, you know, over the last few years especially. Let me rephrase it another way. One of the, the best compliments I'm given, and I'm not ashamed to say I, I get this compliment quite frequently from people who meet me, is you're surrounded by a group of awesome people. Yeah. They'll come and they'll hang out and they'll meet Rick or Travis or yeah. Ray or whoever. It doesn't matter. And they're like, man, these are, these are good yeah. men and women. Yeah. And so I started to think about that. We don't all share the same views about what happens after you die. Mm-hmm. Many of us do. Some of us don't.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it, But it reminded me, like, what really does matter? Mm-hmm. What matters to me about the people who are close to me isn't how they think the life began. I don't know how life began. I'm going to rely on science to eventually tell us that question. I'm not going to pretend I know. I don't think it was Adam and Eve, um, but it's not that important for me on a day-to-day basis. And, he, and I also don't know what happens after you die. I'm of the camp that I think that when the brain is destroyed, you die, um, and therefore I'm an atheist, which means I don't believe in God. But I'm not saying there is none, or that I—I I, I don't know. Um, and so someone doesn't have to agree with me on those issues if they disagree with me on those issues it's not that big of a deal but if they disagree with me about values if they disagree with me about how you're supposed to raise your kids or how you're supposed to treat your wife or how you're supposed to pay your bills or how you're supposed to get every, up every day and honor your um, obligations then we have, we're going to have an issue and all the people who are around me that everybody talks about being a good person we all share those values and they could be buddhist or they could be christian or they could be atheists but we share those values know um, somebody like Travis is atheist like me. those are embedded in his and you can see it not by what he says but how he raises his kids how he and Kisa raise their children how they live their life Um, and that's what matters and so that's where I'm at now so the people that are around me to me it's it's important that you keep good people around you it's very important especially when you have kids but anyway who you're surrounded by is going to make such a difference to your life. And what matters to me about those people are the values that we share. And the rest of it I can have a conversation about with anybody if they're interested in it. I think it's valuable to have an education on the ancient debates that have gone on. The arguments haven't really changed. I mean you have the Discovery Institute and, and intelligent design and things like that to come up but they're just variations of the same creationist arguments that were offered at the time of the Greeks. So if you go back and understand these arguments then those are helpful to teach people how to think logically, and they're helpful to teach people reason. But ultimately, whatever um, conclusions people draw based on these ancient arguments doesn't matter to
0: me. What matters to me are those values. So that that's my own circle. There's definitely a number of questions which popped up while you were speaking. So one of them, that stage for you are you use the term narcissistic, like self-involved. Actually, I can quickly share what, what happened to me, too. And I mentioned to you that a little bit last time we spoke. Uh, the moment I was most narcissistic, I realized, was the moment where I was most spiritual. So that's where it was funny to hear that you had a similar experience. Uh, I meditated a lot, and I was very much in what I call a zero state. Like, kind of non dualistic in... A, not not relating to the body so well not relating to responsibilities to relationships everything seemed to me like i'm and the thing is i had no problem i was like i I see no problem but it doesn't mean others didn't see a problem didn't have a problem and i was i was not functional and later after when i kind of woke up from that i realized That was terrible. I was so bad. I was like not a functional human being at all. Connected to the world around you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I was a terrible teacher, like instructor. I was a terrible husband. I was terrible everything. And uh, so that was my experience of one of the reasons why I felt that was. I think after that, I I started feeling repulsed from the whole thing, and starting I started to see those patterns in other people who practice that. So I was wondering whether you had a similar experience or do you think like your your experience came from a different angle? So how was it?
1: No it sounds very similar. I mean um, sit around and ponder some Buddhist <laughs> argument and meanwhile your child is sitting next to you needing attention or your wife or your friend or whoever. Right. The point behind if, there, if we were going to attach a meaningful definition to the term spiritual I would think that it would be in addition to the values that I talked about the way you live your life it would be being more connected to the the world around you, being more connected to the people that you care about and less connected to what's going on inside the internal dialogue of your brain Um, and it seems to have, much of that stuff seems to have the opposite effect it's like so here's the problem Here's the cure, and we're gonna talk about the cure, and you're gonna replace this problem with this new problem, which is gonna be you talking about the cure the whole time. And meanwhile, and this is the where I wasn't, I didn't go too far down this path, thankfully, but you know, the people who you see have, have really like gotten this disease you know they have all the spiritual materialism of like they have the dress and they get the <laughs> bracelets, and then the worst is then they start talking really softly, you know yeah, like yeah. they're like they're some kind of guru, and it's like it's my problem with the Buddhist podcast i've said before i can't listen yeah. to any of them because as soon as the guy's voice comes on, I want to punch him in the face <laughs> you know? wake up and connect to the world around you right now, you know what's actually going on and I don't know exactly why that has that effect, but you know, I suspect strongly that as social primates, you know, we evolved to help each other. We evolved to uh, connect to each other. Prior to the divisions that are so common these days, whether it's through glass screens and phones or um, ideology, we evolved as social primates and, and animals that were in a community and the more connected you get and then the data of course the scientific data backs this up the healthiest the healthiest people the happiest people are always people that have real relationships they know their neighbor they know their kids they're involved they have you know simple thing but with my kids instead of letting them play video games I got them we started replaying the original Dungeons & Dragons which I played when I was a teenager back in the 80s and that's awesome because we're sitting around a table and we're having a community talking to each other making up a story together which if you think about it is what we would have done back in the day when we were in our caves around the campfire and that's so much that brings so much more happiness than being disconnected from them and then trying to find an outlet some other way, whether video games or whatever else it is, to, to get that going. And I think spiritual, the spiritual marketplace, I guess we could call it, or whatever, that, that preys on that need. It's just a, it's another video game, it's another way to tune out from the world around you. And there's nothing that I experienced in the most unusual of those experiences that I've had over my life that I couldn't pass on to someone else with a sentence, you know, just be connected more to the people around you. Just be in a state where you're actually listening to what they're having to say and hearing what they're having to say, and being part of reality as it is now. And so I don't know why a lot of that seems to have the opposite effect. It does. It has the, in many ways, the correct message sometimes, but it it seems to have the opposite effect. It certainly did for me.
0: I'm also curious, uh, just looking at your whole background, uh, you mentioned, I'm still not so familiar with the work, so hopefully I get the name right, Sam Harris? Sam Harris. Sam Harris. So you read the book, transformed your perspective. Yes. Was that, because critical thinking is a big part of what you do, and uh, was that one of the points where you started adapting that type of mentality? outside of martial arts okay martial arts was before that oh right? yeah
1: yeah so for whatever reason um, i have always been all about critical thinking and applying logic and reason and evidence-based thinking to martial arts from the moment i first saw them and was introduced to them to my and that's what caused me to leave jee kune do you know, i was teaching Jiu kune do right after i got out of the military in my very early 20s so i was like 21 22 23 i was teaching those arts And I moved away from those arts and started talking about aliveness when I was 23, 24. And I still, I don't think I, at the time, I didn't have time to think about God or not God or anything because I was working a regular day job, you know, trying to take care of my kids. I have two older boys and and, um, and, and build a gym. So I was probably working. 70 hours a week, you know, I'd work a full time job and then drive to the gym and do all the gym stuff, just me, had no staff, and then go to bed, get up because I work graveyards, do the same thing. That went on for a couple years, and in that process, I didn't really have time to think about existential questions about the nature of reality, right? We get that as we get older, and I guess it's almost a luxury, and um. And also whatever spare time I had to think, I was just obsessed with martial arts. But I was the aliveness and the, the methodology that we use in SBG predates all this other aspect of it. For whatever reason I didn't apply and now it's congruent. Now the thinking that I apply to martial arts is no different than the thinking I apply to existential questions about the nature of reality. It's the same I use the same epistemology. It's in, which is nice to be congruent across the board. I feel comfortable with that. I never feel like I'm lying to people and break comfortable just saying I don't know or here's what I think and here's my evidence why you can present what you think um, but I guess I didn't that's that actually uh, come to think of it might actually be what it what it was in a way is that when I read Sam Harris's book I, I thought oh wow he applied what I've been doing right. in martial arts you know, to
0: scriptures and then I made the connection mm-hmm. right yeah, it's interesting because for me it was more or less foot-to-foot. I think that, that when I started questioning martial arts I, I also looked at my spiritual background and I was like, oh, there's a lot of similarities here, there's a lot of patterns. And so I was, I was curious whether it was foot-to-foot for you and it's interesting that there was a kind of, a, it was two different separate realms. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's
1: very interesting. And then you can go back, in retrospect you can see it, right? In the very traditional martial arts, they have the same stories, there's always some history about how it was created, and there's, there's always some saint or apostle or somebody in the past who could perform miracles, there's always special uniforms, weird hats, uh, in many of the, the traditions there's an actual lineage where you have to have contact with that original teacher, right, kind of very zen-like in a way, um, yeah it's all. And then when you get a big enough organization of traditional martial arts it kind of looks like the Vatican. You're gonna have a pope and bishops, yeah. and, uh, and nobody's allowed to question anything. And then doctrine comes down from on high, and it's all yeah. It's just it's, it's, names and faces change, the uniform changes, the game they are playing changes, but the epistemology and the and the philosophy behind it is essentially the same thing once you break it down. So,
0: one of the things uh, I picked up I picked up by watching some of the videos you did. Uh, the S- one of the SBG videos, you you use the quote that life is absurd. can't move. That's Camu. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, so I imagine it's true up to today, or maybe it's, maybe it's not a core like. That's not, I wouldn't call that a core belief, but it's just one, I have an appreciation for irony. So. Right. so could you tell a little bit about that? Because it's, it's very much, maybe, so a few words about that. Uh, spirituality, I really like what you said. Uh, and that was my experience too. Spirituality pretends to know things that they don't know. Exactly. Right. So I'm,
1: I feel like I have very good reasons for believing in the values that I believe in. I think it's very important, we discussed this you and I earlier, um, that when you get married and have, I feel it's very important that when you have kids with someone that you have a commitment to that person, uh, which in our tradition is marriage. And I believe that that's very, it doesn't mean I think everybody should stay together of course, but once you have children that you have to put the kids ahead of your own life in many ways like it all becomes about making sure that they have it better than you had it and helping that next generation go forward i believe that to my core to the point where if somebody is a bad parent and hasn't protected or taken care of their children it's more or less impossible for me to respect them at a certain level it doesn't matter how accomplished they are in other fields of their life i'm not going to view that person especially men with any kind of um admiration certainly now that would be a core value I believe in but I can give you very practical reasons both on a personal level individual level as well as a societal level why I think that's important for culture for nations for communities for for us as human beings Um, you can also get those beliefs from religion but what I would say there, and it's not me, this is what Sam, the argument Sam made in his book, but religion gives you bad reasons to do good things when there's very good reasons available. And one of my problems with religion is if people adopt a religion and then cease to think about the things that the religion is telling them to do or not do, they may may do good things for sure, Uh, and they may do bad things too. as far as it relates to the positive things that they do, they may never really get to the point where they understand better reasons for, for why they do that. Uh, it's almost uh, impoverishing, in a way, where you have this really rich architecture of why these things are valuable for all of us, and you never really get to explore that because you, the book said to do it, so I do it that way. Right? It's like a gold-plated excuse not to think anymore. Again, I don't mean that by any, by any means that all religious people do that. There's very thoughtful Christians who, who do put tremendous amount of belief in what they do. I know them, so I, I don't mean to say that. But religion can have that effect. And when you don't have religion, you, you're left with that. Right? That's what you have to do. You, you're, you're, you're taught something is important. And if you're at all intelligent, you're going to want to find out, is it important? Why is it important? And if you don't have that to go back on, well, it's important because this book said it's important and you have to think through it, then I believe, and I'm an optimist in this sense, and I believe that the evidence is strongly on my side, I believe you'll still come around to the, to the good values. Because I believe that the, those Christians who practice that lifestyle are doing the right thing. And so um, you're gonna come around to the proper way of doing it anyway.
0: It's just, you don't need, you don't need a God to tell you that. I, that's one of the points I really like from when you shared your story and the points you made that the values, some people who, and this is again an interesting kind of interrelated point where progressive people, it's a little bit like the spiritual people, it's an ideology for sure and it's taken on faith, much of it. Yeah. I'm still getting to know this culture especially while I'm living in Portland, but uh, it seems like. It's a lot about doing the right thing again, pretty, probably for the wrong reasons. I think it's. I have a hint. I think it's a lot. It's a lot about looking like you're doing. it. Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's a lot about me and spirituality. I know I've never a lot like. about looking like you're doing. Right, right. exactly. It's yeah. about me looking good, yeah. like me being the the good person. Yeah. And same way, I, yeah. I noticed that oftentimes, I'm sure there's legit, authentic progressiveness, Absolutely, but it's yeah. not yeah. extremist. Yeah. No. <laughs> Right. and uh, but then there's just, like even the organic food can sometimes do that as well like people who are into organic food or uh, you, you watched uh jp ultra spirituality yes. he makes good fun of yeah, that yeah. so 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 yeah it's he's like, a he's, he's, he's awesome he's really good <laughs> he definitely went through that i yeah. can see so yeah it looks like there's a but yeah so so pretending to do the right thing is not, or quote unquote doing the right thing, is not as much important as having values or the reasoning for why you're doing that. Right. That's kind of my right. thought, and it seems like you, you have that experience as well.
1: Yeah. 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 You know, how is somebody living their life? How do, how do they treat the people around them? Are they kind? Are they involved in their community? You know, um, The more, it's interesting too, because the more shut off I see people get, even people I care about deeply, but. For whatever reason they become embittered by their experiences or the life has just been too rough for them and everybody gets dealt a different hand and the, and some people get dealt a really harsh hand but if they get dealt that hand and then they start to get bitter and then they start to close themselves off and all they do is spend time on the internet or watching cable tv and then after a while inevitably it seems like you can see these people become very ideological and very emotional and and, and almost hate is almost too strong a word but like they're motivated by a dislike of the other side more than they are any particular activity they're involved in in real life and i've seen that happen i you see that happening i think unfortunately a lot um, with social media which is a great example of this because there's who you are on social media and and what you even somebody that doesn't let's just say somebody that doesn't pay any attention to social media but just all they do is close themselves off and listen to these outside sources coming in, and, and and after a while, it's just not good for you, right? It's like, what are you doing with your life? You're getting up. Who are you helping? What joy are you bringing to the world around you? How are your relationships with the people that matter? Um, and you can tell people that you should do these things, but over time i think it's been my experience certainly and i think most people's experience mimics this is if you do engage in those activities to one degree or another and i certainly haven't been
0: okay, I, I don't
1: i'm not the perfect example of that but to the degree that i've been more involved in activities to help other people i've been happier and so over time you just realize as you get older wow this is you're just going to be happier this way why why sit around <laughs> on the internet and think about all the people you hate it just makes people crazy. And I can see it now. I see, I have friends who, who are on the far right politically, who I will agree with on certain issues, but I can see now that they're motivated primarily not by the logic of those issues or um, the activities that are, they're involved in daily that involve those issues, but just a, like a hatred of the other side, like how bad the other side is. I have friends on the far left. And I'll agree with them on certain issues, but I can see also, again, it's like, how often does this actual issue come up in your daily life? Like, is this actually a roadblock to you doing what you wanna do day to day? Or is this just, and it's just a hatred of the other side and it gets magnified by social media and it gets magnified when we're lonely. Sometimes those people don't have a community of people that they can hang out with, which is another, talking about something really spiritual, I think the most spiritual thing we do at SBG, and that we do in martial arts is we create a community where people can come after work or before work or whatever and hang out with other good people and wrestle right and then afterwards if they go out many of them do and socialize and have dinner and lunch together and how many students do we have that you know after three four five months many of their friends are at the gym and it becomes a real community of people that you're very literally having contact with, like they're trying to choke you. You know, you're at, and and I don't even mean to minimize that because the actual physical contact with another human being is important, right? And so, I think that's probably the single most valuable thing we can do: is just get people into the gym, getting people to hang out with other human beings in real life. Um, and that's like I, I've seen older coaches that have come through, and they'll get injured. Um, or they won't be able to roll at the level that they used to be able to roll at, which is part of the trip and part of what we have to, all of us have to confront in the art. It's a beautiful part of the trip that you have to deal with. And you can either deal with it and overcome it or you can let it beat you. And you let it beat you the moment you, you stay off the mat because you don't, don't want to get beat anymore. Now, a traditional martial arts guy, sensei, never has to confront this. It's a lesson he'll never be offered because you're always going to be that guy. But in jiu when you're 50 or 52 and your body's had so much, and here comes a young 30-year-old who's now a new black belt or whatever, they should beat you. If, if they're your own student and they can't beat you, you're not a very good coach, right? Because I can't compete at the, at the Worlds right now. At 50 years old, I can't go do that. But I have athletes who can do that. I would hope I have athletes who can do that, right? So you now have to confront that in a very real way. And the most important thing is... You stay on the mat and you don't have to beat them to be of value. Your value then at that stage becomes all the um, lessons you can offer to all the students, even an MMA coach. Um, once you get past like 34, right? 35, your best value isn't as a body, a sparring partner for the team. Your best value is a set of eyeballs on the side of the mat that's helping that young athlete overcome that. Team. So, anyway. Those lessons which are forced upon us through combat athletics are spiritual lessons as far as I would define them. They help us mature as human beings and they help us become better human beings. But if people m- miss those lessons or refuse to confront them by letting that push them away from jiu-jitsu or letting that push them away from the mat or worse, adopting some fantasy-based martial arts, they don't have to confront that. I've seen that happen too. Um, then this ceases becoming something healthy and it becomes something negative and you can see them get bitter and lonely and then this whole cycle we talked about comes into play where they become more concerned with the other a disliker of the other and so i guess bringing the conversation full circle like the, to me the real valuable part the spirit if there is such a thing as a spiritual part of martial arts that spiritual part of martial arts involves the lessons that we learn as we age with the art, starting as a young athlete and then progressing as a teacher and then progressing as uh, older athlete um, or you know, mentor to the tribe, and being able to be comfortable uh, and mature with the role as the role changes. And not, a, not allowing that to push you away from the, from the tribe or the community, but actually making it so that it draws you closer that's the spiritual part of do, and that's always been present in warrior cultures um, it's always been present anytime there's been a real martial art um, and you it's not just that it's different from a martial art like Aikido. it's like it's more than that you can't get that from Aikido. it's not even available to you and so you know Anytime someone says, why even say this, why even say that, it's because there's a better option, right? You can really come to, to a sport like we have, combat art like we have, and you can grow
0: with it for the rest of your life. Yeah, really resonate with what you're seeing, and um, one of the reasons I, I feel I'm such a strong, I'm such a devoted advocate of uh, criticizing traditional martial arts and Promoting functional martial arts because I noticed first hand from personal experience that one tends to make there's good and let's say bad people in both realms But the tendency is that traditional martial arts tend to create more self-observed Let's say bad people yeah. dysfunctional they bring out the worst in us. exactly yeah. and functional martial arts while there's the myth in the traditional martial arts that they're quote-unquote meatheads right. uh, it's actually my, my direct experience was the opposite it, yeah. they tend to make more humble people more realistic people and yeah so. that's been my experience as well which is not to say we don't have
1: meatheads in the sport yeah. I mean, we do and you can see them but when you when you see, especially if you see a community or a gym that has more meatheads and and embodies that kind of you know negative stereotype of combat athletes, and there are gyms that embody that, um, inevitably those are young men that haven't had strong fathers or strong role models or strong senior coaches who have stepped up and served as an example and shown them um, how to grow with the art and in. Absent those men, you get a kind of a Lord of the Flies environment, and you're going to get people who are kind of meatheads. Some of the tradition and some of the etiquette that is drawn from traditional martial arts, which is a carryover from the warrior cultures, whether it was samurai or medieval knights, is useful and has its place, provided that the art that you're teaching is still real because there is a place to teach young men that they should um, honor and and value their seniors. And um, to respect the fact that this is someone who, through injury and through everything that goes on in our life, has stayed on the mat for 25 or 30 years. And that even though you might be a 21-year-old stud and tap this person out, they have a lot to offer. Factually speaking. Being able to to have a community where young men are taught to recognize that is very important, and so some semblance of propriety and uh, manners is key. But it all rests on a foundation of what's real, and when you take away what's real, and you're working make believe, then all that becomes contrived too, because they're because they're really all those reasons why you really should respect. Uh, That person would have something to offer you are gone. That person has something to offer you because they've been doing a real martial art for like 25 years. They're going to have some tricks up their sleeve as it relates to just surviving Mm. that are going to be valuable for you, but But you don't need to to take my word for it when you're when the foundation of what you're doing is real then then that's there but anyway back to my point is I Can see even some very famous jiu-jitsu coaches who who are men they're in their 40s and their 50s sometimes even and they behave like juvenile delinquents and it's important as gym owners and as people who are running teaching what we do that in our communities we teach people not to respect that nobody i don't you're not going to find one of my black belts um, who i think you could show some stupid incident like that, maybe a fight that breaks out in a tournament or something like that, and they're going to think that's cool. <laughs> they're not going to think it's cool. You know, and, and you look and you think, well, man, it's just too bad that this person hasn't matured past that. And the, it would be a mistake to think that because they say that, if you were to harass them at a tournament and, the, and push comes to shove, they're not also going to punch you in the face. It's not about the violence part. It's just about the fact that there's the person that obviously hasn't matured. And that's where it's very important to have those mentors and role models in, in the gym. Especially for young men. I think it's important for both men and women, but for y- young men need strong fathers and they need strong role models. And Jiu Jitsu, when it's taught the right way or any combat athletic sport when it's taught the right way, can help provide that. So if, you, if we go to Montana and you have somebody like Travis who has a large kids program because he's doing business the the right way and best practices, and he's a great coach. I don't know how many kids he has, but let's say for sake of argument, 250. Um, There's probably a lot more, but that's 250 young men and women in Kalispell who now several days a week get to walk onto a mat and have good positive role models of people who are behaving well, with maturity, who have also accomplished some tangible real skill. and that's, you know, that's huge for that community, for a small town like that. And some of those young men and women might not have good role models at home. They might not even have uh, good fathers at all. Or some might have fathers who are you know, derelict Bohemians. But there they can go and they're like, okay, this is how I should behave. And this is somebody who all young men are gonna respect him because he has his fighting skill, but who also treats people with kindness and who's mature. That's huge, that's huge. So, you know, in addition to the lessons that martial arts, functional martial arts, teach us if we allow ourselves to to accept the lesson and mature with it, there's that uh, aspect of really
0: a service to the community that they provide, uh, which is massive, it's massive. Role models, yeah, that's, I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that a lot. I think that's, lately when I looked at uh, so, just actually a couple of steps back, um, when you mentioned about people focusing on problems which are not really directly related to them, I remember there was an episode in the school I ran, uh, the, the Aikido school, where we would have tea after class, and I would, um, we would discuss about things. And, and back in my country, Lithuania, it was very popular back at the day, still is, uh, to complain about the government and to complain about. Whatever is happening in the country, it's popular here too. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's a related point. Yeah, and and I was listening to it, and I was always very, I always tend to be practical, like a person of action, not just talking. And uh, and I, after a while, I realized I got frustrated because we're talking about that for hours and hours, and it leads nowhere. Right. Yeah. And and eventually, I I I made this kind of a guideline rule. I said we're not going to talk about an issue unless we're going to do something about it. Right. And it significantly cut down, like dramatically cut down, any talks about government problems or environment problems, whatever, because it turned out it's not really important. It's not really relevant to these particular people. Not that it's not important for someone. Right. So yeah, that's... uh... It's interesting because I don't have a problem per se
1: with people having conversations like that, but that's another good example where it's important to have mature mentors and role models because the easiest thing to do on the face of the earth is to criticize long-standing institutions that you're unqualified to participate
0: in, right?
1: To sit there and criticize these long-standing institutions that you are totally unqualified to participate in. It's one thing if you have somebody that is qualified, and when that happens, um, you see it all the time, like the typical rebellion that we all go through. I went sure. through rebellion yeah. when more teenagers or preteens, and you, the government's stupid, and the, like the period in life where you'd hang a Che Guevara poster on your wall, or <laughs> whoever it is, right? Yeah. At some point, it's useful to have a father around, or a mature male role model who sit down and explain to you, listen, okay, I understand your frustration. This institution has was created because of this historically. It exists because of this historically. This is what it does. What is your solution? If we could wave a wand tomorrow and, and eliminate the Senate or the Supreme Court or whatever it is, what would you then offer? And then, like the kid thinks wow I really don't have anything to offer in fact I don't know anything about what I'm talking about and 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 then they're gonna see older men who have continued that tradition of criticizing long-standing institutions that they have no qualifications for and they're not going to be you know drawn in by that and they're mature and that for some people that process might take a long time to be able to learn that lesson. And that's what those mentors and, and more mature role models that you can have even in a gym are for. So as a young, if you just envision some young teenage kid making some argument like that at a social after one of the camps, there's going to be several you know, mature men like maybe Adam Singer who's going to sit down and put his arm around him and say, listen, let me explain to you why we have a Supreme Court or whatever it is, right? And that, boom. How much time did that save that kid's life in that kid's life, right? That they can now go on and if they really are motivated by that question, get an relevant education so that right. they can actually change the system in some way, you know. And um, the what we do can be part of that to the degree that you know we foster that healthy, mature people being all. T- I, I love the fact that there's teenagers and there's kids and there's young athletes and then there's guys like um, Dr. John who's, I don't know how old is, 65 let's say, he's in the 60s on the same mat. How awesome is that? And it's inevitable that over the course of as the years go by they're going to have contact and some conversation or some words of advice will be shared and that's how valuable is that for those young men especially, right? So, that's
0: spiritual. Very much agree and actually I'll I'll get into this and extend to Um, So, one of the things, when I thought about spirituality and I had that crisis of realizing that all those kind of actually superficial beliefs that were put in my head of what matters, understanding reality, etc. I started questioning, so what spirituality is? and uh, what what spirituality is really what it's supposed to really do and the answer like how do you define a spiritual person then for me the spiritual person eventually was actually I think it's very similar to what what you said as well it's a person who is able to care not only about him authentically care not only about himself but also about others which surpasses religion his personal beliefs or, or whatever it's and so that's much more spiritual and when I started asking myself so instead of looking at all these common subjects of problems pretending we're good people what's what is authentically what is authentically that we can do for society and two crucial points for me were role models and community yes I think these are two things which are really we're in dire need for those so it's very interesting actually to bring the point that uh, a community such as SPG can can actually facilitate that, yes. that so. and that's why
1: it's so important to have a, a gym where you have people of all ages training and you have an environment and a curriculum that allows for that uh, it's only going to benefit those athletes more right it's really important it reminded me of a story I'll tell you a funny story one of my black belts um, one time we were sitting around at a table after one of the camp, or not a camp, it was a seminar. But we are sitting around a table and a young woman who was training at, the, at my seminar, she was probably 16, 17. She had a date that night, like a prom or something, some school dinner. And so her dad also trains at the gym. She and her father took the seminar. So she brought the boy to pick her up at the restaurant. So, so this young kid walks in. He's 16 or 17 years old, and they, of course, make it so he's sitting down next to me and surrounded by these large men who are black belts, and they're grilling, or, grilling this guy and teasing him and giving him, giving him a hard time. It was all in good spirits, and and he took it well. He was, seemed like a nice, nice young guy, and then they went off on the date, and I didn't really think too much about it. But then one of my black belts, I think it was the next day, but he looked at me and he said. You know, I really blew it last night because that kid actually seemed like he was a nice guy. And instead of teasing him the way we did, I could have maybe connected with him more and had a better conversation. And I didn't, I thought about it for a second. I didn't, I didn't perceive it that way. I thought he was being fine. He was being a bit scary, I guess. But I guess he, he regretted the fact that he was being scary and instead hadn't connected to, to the young guy more because he seemed like a nice kid. But what struck me about that incident was how much thought he put into it. Like when he told me that he regretted it, he was absolutely sincere, right? So this is somebody who really does care about other people and about wanting to mentor young men. And so, you know, how valuable is it to have people like that on the mat as part of the organization? That's huge, it's huge. Those are the guys that I want to be in charge. That's way more important than how well they can armbar. He can armbar too, well as as well, but which one's gonna serve the community more in the coming
0: 10, 20, 30, 40 years? He'll be valuable on the mat when he's 85. This is actually a recurring pattern that I notice, a good pattern. And especially around uh, places like SBG, but so SBG for sure is an example. Uh, seems like the person, the more he progresses through ranks, like person in Jiu-Jitsu, blue belt, purple belt, brown belt, black belt, he om- almost, on the same step by step, he almost becomes more authentic, more, sure. more sincere, yeah. more honest. Which is which is such a great sign that there is a correlation there. Yeah. That it's not just an accident. That because when when you come in and one of the reasons I was happy to see some of your uh, brown belts turning black, to black belts, because when you meet a black belt, it seems like he was always like that forever. Yeah. There's, yeah, like there's that illusion, like, oh, he's always, he was born black belt, he yeah. was always that cool, <laughs> you know, he was always that yeah. smart or whatever. Yeah. But it's not like that. No. And you probably saw a lot of those transformations. Oh, yeah. Years. Some of those guys have been at the gym for
1: I don't even know, like two decades, right? Yeah. Rick started training with me when, I think, 1980, uh, f-
0: 1980, there's a picture.
1: 98? I think, I think he's, yeah, actually. I think he, he and, so that's what, 20 years? Yeah, 21 years. 21? Uh, um, Maybe he wasn't, he's always been, you know, at their core, they were always, you know, good good men and women, but he certainly was a different Rick. Like, we, we were all very different. My, me especially, so I don't mean it that way, but you know if you were to go back twenty years of time we'd all be very different, including him and, and again this speaks to what we've been talking about there's there's a maturity
0: process that that the that the art can force upon you when it's taught in the right environment my last official question uh, so you experienced the transformation of going from the spiritual mindset uh, to critical mindset, figuring out that there, there were a lot of flaws there. Uh, for a person who's, and I pretty much asked this thing for martial arts, but so for spirituality, for a person who's either going through that transition or having some doubts about his spiritual path, would you have a message to share, a recommendation, a advice? So what, what, what should a person who's in the spiritual path look out for uh, to make sure he's on the right path? I'm going to make it identical to what I would
1: say to somebody about martial arts. So the first thing I would say is you need to be you, the person themselves. You yourself need to be really clear and have clarity on what exactly it is you're asking and want. So when you say, when someone says, uh, I'm on a spiritual quest, what, what are you, what do you think you're looking for? Are you looking for better relationships? Are you looking for happiness? Are you interested in, do, do, do you believe that you can, or are you searching for an answer to what happens after you die, whether or not people reincarnate, you know, the actual nature of what you're asking for is really important. For me, throughout my whole life, I think just through sheer, the way I was wired, I have always been interested in truth, what's true is what motivates me. So. Sometimes people are motivated more by what they want to hear as opposed to what's true. And I think it's really important in the beginning. It would be very similar with martial arts. Somebody's motivated by what they think being a martial artist will be like if they become a black belt, But they're not per se really motivated by actually being able to fight or what, what really works in a fight. So you have to say, are you really interested in truth? And if you are interested in the truth of this particular topic, whatever it is that, that you're fascinated by, are you willing to go where the evidence leads? Um, if, if it contradicts what you hope is true, will you still follow? You know, are, you re- are you willing to go that way? So I, w- I would caution the person, and no one else can answer that question for you. That's not, something, that's not a, a question you can find an answer to in a book. Right? That's something I think people have to really go inside and think about. And once they have the answer to that, then I would say the epistemology is identical. It's like you, you need to follow evidence-based approach. So if you're, if you're trying to find out answers about human behavior or why people do certain things or where we come from, um, where we're going, the first place I would send them would be science. Neuroscience and anthropology and, and how... How good is your understanding of evolution and natural selection? And do you understand the arguments for and against God? And have you gone through that aspect of it? And if it's more about meaning, which I think sometimes people's questions as it relates to spirituality is about meaning, I would still move them in a direction towards science to the degree that that meaning relates to empirical questions, but then I'd also steer them towards the literature. And that's a, very, that's a much more personal journey I think because different types of literature speak to people's needs different no two people like the same different writers speak to different, people, different 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 texts but there's obviously a huge canon of fantastic literary works that we scribbled as primates that people can go to and those would be the places that I would send them but the epistemology of clarity of your question having an answer-seeking method that's evidence-based, and then being authentic to what you discover. So there's the clarity of question part in the beginning, which is authenticity. There's the epistemology part in the middle, which is actually the easiest part to teach. It's critical thinking, scientific method, and then there's integrity at the end, ethics at the end, which is, okay, you've asked your question, you've come up with the best available answers at the moment and understanding that it's likely to admit to ever-increasing complexities as we learn more, now do you follow it? Are you gonna go with that or are you more interested in what you hope would be true? And, uh, And that's identical to what Pete would teach for critical thinking. And what he would say and what I would say is you can teach people the center part, the epistemology part, very easy. I can teach anyone aliveness. I can show them timing, energy, motion. I can show them how to create a drill for anything. I can, show, I can explain the process. And I think most people, um, especially one-on-one, will get it. It's not that complicated. And I can give that to them. What I can't give them is the interest in asking, the interest in the truth to begin with, and the ethical authenticity to follow up where it leads. That's an attitude, it's a disposition, as people say, which is very hard to teach. The only thing we can do with that is model. And again, that's where having mentors and a strong community of people is important because they can see other people who maybe have followed a similar path, who had other similar questions and, and see how they've lived out that, that experience. But I can't teach the first and last part. I can only teach the middle part.